0: Well, if you're, if you're new today or in the last couple weeks and you're curious, you know, what, what is Titus? What is this all about? Uh, Titus is just a short book in the New Testament that's, that's often pretty overlooked. Uh, we've been spending, this is now our sixth of six weeks in this book. as three chapters. But the whole context of this is that the Apostle Paul is writing to this man named Titus who was left behind on this island of Crete, which still exists today, uh, but it was an island that was very difficult. The culture was one that was selfish and rambunctious and rebellious. And, uh, and he was there planting churches and strengthening churches with that, uh, in that, in that culture. So he had his work cut out for him. And largely speaking, he was, he was doing this kind of alone, at least for the moment. But today we're seeing uh, all of this wrap up, kind of the final, the parting remarks from the Apostle Paul, and, and the, the theme today that we see is that as Christians, we are to live productive lives. Like we're, we're to live for the things that really matter. And one thing I realized as as reading through this uh, and, and preparing for today is that there's a vast difference between being busy and being productive. Now, the busy part we have no problem with in our culture. We're very busy in a lot of things. And every day, I think a lot of people are just run ragged by everything that's going on. But the question you have to ask yourself is Am I being productive? Am I being productive for what really matters for eternity? Are you busy or are you productive? And uh, as many of you know, I have two children. I have now about to turn six years old boy and about to turn one-year-old girl. And it's fun for me to see these stages of life kind of come and go in them. Uh, I remember when Mason, our boy, was around 18 months old. He could get into everything he wanted to, and he did. And one of his favorite things was to go into the kitchen cabinet and just empty everything out on the floor. And he was busy with it. And we'd put everything back, and he'd empty it all out again and uh, he could be entertained for hours that way. Now, our, our girl is crawling and mobile, and she's getting into things, and I know it's only a matter of time until she's going to be the same. The reality is, they stay busy with it. They don't know what they're doing or why they're doing, but they love it. And they keep doing it. And Sometimes I think that might describe us as Christians, as people. We're busy doing the same things over and over again. We don't know why. We don't know for what purpose, but we sure are busy doing it. We have to be focused as Christians to be eager of of what is good and what is right and what is productive, not just now, but for all of eternity. And that's really what what all of chapter 3 kind of culminates with. And today we're going to do a little bit different. If you are here last week, you know that we kind of quickly bypassed uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3 and got into the other verses because what we have in chapter 3 is is called kind of a sandwiched discussion. So verses 1 and 2, he kind of makes an important point. And then he goes on to an aside in verses 3 through 8, and then he concludes that point starting in verse 9. So we're going to start first just going back to verses 1 and 2 and talk about those today. When it comes to being productive as a Christian, Paul offers these friendly reminders for us. This is what Titus is to tell to all the believers. So this is something that applies to all of us. And these are actually more than friendly reminders. These these are commands. Like these are the things that we need to be doing as Christians, but we start in verse 1. I'll read that here. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. We'll stop right there for now. That, that we're supposed to remind, Titus is supposed to remind the people, and this is talking about all of the believers in the various churches on the island of Crete. First, that they need to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Now, this is pretty radical for the island of Crete, where it was just a lot of chaos and anarchy. And everyone kind of did what they wanted. But this is a recurring theme in the book of Titus, is this idea of submission and obedience. And that's, that's hard for us to hear in our culture as well, because this is the land of the, uh, home of the, the free, land of the brave, right? We, we are independent, and we do what we want when we to, want to, to? nobody can tell us otherwise. But the mark of the Christian is to be subject or submissive to rulers and authority and to be obedient. If we're honest, that's, that's hard for us to hear and, and, and to exemplify in our lives. And earlier in the book of Titus, he's, he's talking about the same idea with church leadership, church authorities, elders and overseers, that, that you should not be rebellious, but there should be this idea of submission. And the only exception to submission, as we talk here in the civic sense, is is if you are required, legally required, to do something that's in conflict with divine command. And that is a biblical principle. We see it in the Old Testament, the New Testament. If the government is asking you to do something that is in conflict with God's command, then it's okay to defy that. But not in an obnoxious, anarchist, rebellious kind of way but passively denying those things and accepting the full consequence of that. There is a way around submission to authority in that only one exception, and it's to be done in a certain way. But there is this idea of pervasive submissiveness as people, as Christian people, that I think we fall short of because we usually want to do what we want to do, and nobody can tell us otherwise. But he goes one step further of not just doing what you have to do, but then doing what you should be doing. Not just doing what you must legally, but to be doing what you can lovingly. To be ready to do whatever is good. And, and, and the words here, to be ready, is to almost be like, like a cat ready to pounce on something. Right? that you are locked and loaded and ready to go. You're not caught off guard. If if there's an opportunity to do whatever is good, that you're ready for it. And I thought, this is kind of like we are now. We're gearing up for Black Friday and all the sales coming, and there might be the one TV, the one thing you want. And as soon as you see the sale, it's in your cart and you're ordering it, right? You're ready to go. And that's how we should be doing, that's how we should be operating when we see the needs of people around us, whatever is good, is you are ready without a second thought to move forward and to do that. Now we are in a very consumeristic and individualistic culture. And the most common recurring thought we have in just about any situation is, how does this benefit me? Right? What, what do I get out of this situation? But what we're told in the friendly reminder slash command here is, be ready, pounce on the opportunities in whatever is good whatever benefits others. This doesn't mean that we have to deny every need we have in our lives and and lay ourselves bare before everything. But you need to take care of yourself too, but rather expand your thinking beyond yourself. That's a command for all of us as Christians, is to think of the other person in addition to yourself. And it goes on from that into verse 2. And these are kind of like, your inward qualities, this is your thoughts and your attitudes and your perspectives. Now into our outward qualities and how we are to interact with others. That we are to slander no one, verse 2, to be peaceable and considerate and to always be gentle toward everyone. To slander no one, to be peaceful and considerate and always be gentle toward who? Who? Everyone, and the word everyone here is actually describing all three commands before this. Everyone is in this scope. Now, slander is one of those things, Pastor Chris talked about this about three weeks ago, and I'm not going to repeat too much of it, but, but directly defined, slander is, is defined as devil talk or, or evil speak. It's, it's anything you can say towards someone that's going to harm them in some way. Now, this could be to their face, right? An insult straight to their face. It, it could be, and oftentimes, is something behind their back. Something that insults them. It's, it's defamatory remarks that attacks their character or their motives. It's accusations of some kind. But slander is anything that, that attacks another person. And that's exactly what the devil does. He's known in the, the Bible as the accuser of the brethren, right? the accuser of the believers. And so if you're accusing and attacking someone behind the back, you're doing what the devil does. And we're not to do that. You speak in ways that encourage and edify and build up rather than tear down, damage, and destroy. Slander no one, but rather be peaceful and considerate. All right, this is just a person that, that doesn't want to see fights and quarrels happen. Right? To be peaceable means you're working towards something productive in your conversations. If there truly is a situation where someone is in the wrong, you want to see them move towards the right. You don't just talk about how bad they are behind their back. but You talk about this in a peaceable and considerate way and, and know that there's there's another side to this than what you see and understand in the moment. They were always... Gentle towards everyone. And this could also be uh, um, translated as, as humble. That there's a humility that you, you have in you. And this is the true mark of a Christian is humility. Right? Humility is what brings you towards repentance. Humility is what brings you towards faith. Humility is, is, is really what brings you towards anything productive as a Christian. And sometimes that means if someone has wronged you, that being gentle towards them is, is being willing to just overlook it. Just just move on from it and, and not keep a record of wrongdoings. The opposite of this is, is just looking to get the full mileage out of someone's mistake. And we're not to do that. We're to have the proper words and, and the upright actions and the right attitude in every situation. And, and just verse 2, if we all lived this out perfectly, we would have virtually zero conflicts in our life. If you slandered no one, if you're peaceful and considerate, and you're always gentle towards everyone. Now, it's it's impossible to live this out perfectly, but if we all worked towards this, I guarantee you the conflicts in your life would go down to nearly nothing. Now, unfortunately, we don't always get this right. And you know that I've, I've been in this church for about 10 years. I've also been in organized ministry. I've been a something leader in some fashion in the church now for over 20 years. Since know, I'm about to turn... Uh, 38? Wow, yeah. And as, since I've been 16, I've been a something leader in a church. So I've, I've seen a lot of situations in a lot of churches and a lot of things. And, and I tell you what, most of the issues you see between people are because they're not living out, verse 2, very well. And I'm going to give you just kind of a hypothetical thing uh, of, of, of doing it wrong and why this is really important for us, because it can get really crazy really fast. And I've seen this oftentimes as the one reconciling two people together. And I realize that like 95% plus of the time, maybe close to 100% of the time, the issue really wasn't an issue, right? There really was nothing there. It was a misunderstanding or or they made it into something bigger. It's because they didn't live out verse 2 very well. So I'm just going to go through a hypothetical here with person A, person B. This never really happened. And you know, if you want to call them Adam and Brent or Alice and Betty, whatever in your mind, like this, no offense to anyone, name those things. It's this is hypothetical situation of how this can go wrong really fast. Let's just say that person A and person B are in the church foyer after the church service. Person B looks at them and says, hello, good morning. Person A just walks right past them without acknowledging them and talks to another friend. Now, should person B be hurt by that? Yeah, maybe. and That kind of hurts, right? But remember here, what we get is, is to be gentle, considerate, peaceable, and there's no slander here. But it's like, you have the opportunity to just like, oh, that was weird, and move on. Or you can do what is most harmful in the situation. If person B talks to their friend B1 over in the sanctuary, do you know what just happened to me? Do you know what person A just did to me? I said hello to them and they just walked right past me. I cannot believe that. And B1, their friend says, yeah, one time they did the same thing to me like two or three years ago. Well, boy, they're just, they're just an angry person, aren't they? That they would do that? Yeah. Yeah, A is A is an angry person. I I I can't believe I got to go talk to B two about this too. B one agrees with me that that A is an angry person, and B two might be the whole Bible study group of like, yeah, well, I may that see it that way, maybe, and you know, like four years ago, I saw A and their spouse not get along once, and I bet you they have marital issues. Bet you there's some things going on there. Yeah, maybe. Wow, you know what? B three, I heard that he has marital issues, and all this stuff going, "Wow, if all that is true about A, he must be a proud and pompous jerk. I can't believe that, and this is how it goes here, right It goes on and on, and the whole circle of friends are together, and they're talking to each other, and other people are, are pulled in, and it's like, you know what that you know what everyone is saying? Everyone is saying that a is angry, and he's a proud and pompous jerk, and he's really mean to his wife. Everyone's saying it, so it must be true. Now, this started with A walking past B. And I've seen this situation so many times where B should have talked to A. They didn't. They talked to everyone else, and, and all of this, this reality is created for them. And it's true, right? It's true, because everyone is saying it. Now, A eventually hears this. And knows that it's happening. Because this gossip has long legs, right? And it just goes on and on and eventually gets back to A. Now A has a responsibility here. They have to talk to B. And they have to say, Hey, I've been hearing these things. Like, is there something that's going on? And I've actually been A in this situation a number of times in my life. And you know, usually the answer is, is, like, I have nothing to talk about really? Okay, well, I'm hearing all these things that have been going on for months. Nope. The worst thing you can do if you're person A is the same exact thing. <laughs> right? Instead of talking to B, it's like, I'm going to talk to my friend and my Bible study group and, and all this. And, and, you know, we might cloak it as a prayer request, but like, I'm all and then now in this A circle, it's like, yep, person B is bitter and they're probably jealous and they're just mean and they're terrible. And it's like, And then what happens here is about what we're going to get into as as Paul kind of resumes this conversation, is is, is division. No conversation happened between A and B. And now these groups are divided, and all of these things are real in their mind. But do you know who's at fault in, in this hypothetical situation? Every single one of them. Every one of them. And this is just not a church thing. This happens in families, this happens at schools, this happens in politics, this happens in, in neighborhoods, it happens everywhere. And this is the stuff Satan loves. He loves this. And all of this, in this hypothetical situation, happened out of nothing. It was created, I've seen this many times. Many times, and anyone involved in this, if you're B1 through B4, A1 through A4, it's like, hey, I understand that you're really upset. I can hear that. I'm not involved in this situation, and I I think you need to talk to the person you're upset with. That should be your only involvement in this, not like a, well, I heard, and somebody else said. This is Satan's playbook, and he keeps doing it because it works. Because we keep falling for it. But if you lived by his commands. I'm going to read this again. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everything. Let's rewind and go back to the same situation where B has this experience where A offended them. There's a few options here. Just just get over it and move on. Like it really wasn't a big deal. You don't have to make it into a big deal. Or maybe it was a big deal and you have to start thinking about some things, and if it really becomes an issue where you can't let it go, then the only people you should talk to are each other. That, that is the biblical command here, and why we're about to get to the point that we're about to get to in verse 9 through 11. These things can be explosive, but the Bible is clear if someone has offended you, you go to them immediately and you talk to them about it. You don't let the sun go down on your anger, don't let bitterness live in your heart. And this is for all of us in any situation, church, friends, family, talk to them right away. Don't talk to other people about it. And if you have to, it's for the pure purpose of bringing them in to help you reconcile with them. Not to talk about them poorly behind their back and gossip and wonder. All right, and if you're A, you also have a responsibility. If, if you know someone has something against you, then Jesus says, drop your gifts at the altar and go to that person and try to reconcile with them. But this, this is sane, right? This, this here, this little flow chart is sane. This is insane. This is nuts. We need to be people that do this. And that, that's how we're a part of something productive in life. Is, You know what? Life is too short. Eternity is too long. Reconcile with people directly and, and move on. And I say this for anyone here who's been harboring bitterness in your heart, has a grudge against something, and maybe even worse than, than sharing with everyone, is sharing with no one and holding on to this and, and holding sins against people for a long time. Talk to them. And, and I guarantee you, in this situation, it's probably, if it's two believers involved, especially, it's, it's probably something that wasn't a big deal. Because B would have talked to A, and they would have said, I am so sorry. I didn't even know that you said hi to me. Someone is calling to me across the foyer. I, I didn't even hear you. I'm so sorry. And you could have moved on instantly instead of being part of this mess. We, we have to be people that are about this, right? And that's what we get to in the next part here. Is It's now these firm warnings for believers as, as Paul continues in, in this. Knowing that there's going to be issues, there's going to be problems, there's going to be divisions. That's just part of reality when you're in a community. Things happen, but you have to approach it the right way. And the first thing he says this, is this in verse 9. And this again, this is after an aside in verses 3, four, three through 8 where he says, like, Remember, like you were all of those things. Like, this is the way you used to live, but now that you have a new life in Christ, you're different. So this is the first command after that in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. And essentially what he's saying is, don't have stupid arguments. Just, just avoid them. Don't try to win stupid arguments. Just, just avoid them altogether. And he's speaking about a really specific group here, but the principle like applies to everyone today as well. He's speaking about the Judaizers, and these were people who came in, and it just wanted to, to disrupt whole households and, and churches, and, and they wanted to argue about just, just dumb things. That's the foolish controversies of, you know, the Sabbath law says you can only take 98 steps in a day, but I saw you take 99. Yeah? Yeah? And it's like, just Stop. There's genealogies, and this is the idea of like, this personal pride of, like I, I'm related all the way back to Moses, and so, first of all, I'm a really important person, and you need to listen to me. And also, I have special insight into this law. This is what Moses really meant. And it became this, like, this tribalism of, of, of pitting people against each other and then quarrels about the law. It's just like this, this, this intense legalism where they nitpick details and personal opinions of what things really mean. And he, he comes to say that these things are unprofitable and useless. And this is where scripture can't be more clear. These, these kinds of conversations and arguments are pointless and dumb. Just don't, if someone wants to argue about this stuff, just don't even enter. The, the proverb says that to argue with a fool makes you a fool. Nobody wins that argument, and everyone. Loses, and the same is true today. It might not be about these specific things, but it's the same ideas that there's so many things that we can argue and, and be divided about, or personal opinions and peripheral theological issues. We can get so swept up into a conversation or an argument in which everybody loses. Nobody's going to win that argument. You, you lose by entering it. And I think, in my experience. It really comes down to three major areas that, that these conversations are started. And, and one is when personal preference is kind of transformed into a spiritual principle. Right? There's no spiritual, there's, uh, there's no like item in the Word of God that leads to this is what I want and now I've made it into a spiritual principle. And so it means something like drums are the devil's instrument. I can't say I've ever heard that specifically, but it's okay. Someone doesn't like the drums. I get it. I, I'm not a fan of the, the, the nose flute, you know? I don't like the nose flute, but I wouldn't call it the devil's instrument. That's a personal opinion, but now it's made into a spiritual principle of which they hold that over everyone else. And it can get really dumb. And it's like, well, you know that drums are in the Bible, Right? A guitar is the, the devil's instrument. It's like, yeah, it's in the Psalms. It's called the liar. Well, lying is a sin, so... And it, yeah, it is true, yeah. But you see, like, that, it's not a real argument. It's just a personal opinion that they've made into a spiritual principle. Don't argue about those things. They're pointless and they're dumb. As when a, and the second thing I see is when personal conviction... Again, this might be something that God has led you to believe. And it is very true for you, but it's not necessarily a community standard, but then you turn it into one. And this is, this is like a, a great example. Theologically, I don't see any issue with drinking, but I, I personally don't drink. I, for, for many reasons in my life, I, I don't do it, and, and that's my personal conviction. But then I don't hold that over a whole community. I don't expect that anyone else, that's what God led me to do. A lot of times these arguments start with something like that. And the third that's most dangerous that can just lead to dumb things is when there's something kind of undefined in a community, but then the person thinks they have the definition. Right? And so I, arbitrarily, this is the definition that we all must go by because why? It's what I think. And everyone else should know this by now. This is what this actually means. As a community, you have to define things as a community. But no matter how it works, this is the stuff Satan loves. Because arguments and quarrels and and, and sides start being deformed. And there's this climate of anger and and bitterness and contention. And it leads to division, which derails a church from its mission. We're, We're caught up in just really, really dumb things. And Satan loves a divided church. I've never been a part of a church that's gone through a division. But I, I do read about stories and, and it's something you need to be, stay vigilant against and take very seriously as a church. But, but there's, there's uh, consultants who, who help churches through these things and kind of write a list of all the things they've seen in, in their time of, of what they work churches through. And these are real stories. These are real things that led to church splits. Updating the art in the foyer. Right, replacing one picture with another. The key in which the choral piece was sung. What temperature the thermostat was set at for the worship service. And this is my personal favorite. I think I shared this a few years ago. Of there was this huge church split that lasted like decades. Where one group just, just hated the other group. And the pastor were in one group. And the, one of the lead elders was in the other group. And... And they come to find out that all of this started, all of this contention, is was like Hatfield and McCoy kind of stuff, right? It all started because of one potluck where the pastor was in a line and he got a smaller piece of steak than the kid in front of him. Right? That, that's, that's this kind of stuff. It, it's just silly and it's pointless. And the more of these things I read, like you can kind of chuckle at it, but after a while I just get... I get really sad. I just I get depressed. It's like, boy, Satan sure seems to win a lot in these situations. And the way that we can combat this, unity, again, it's not something we create. We don't, we don't create unity among us. We are gifted unity, and we're called to keep it, which means to protect it. We, we protect the unity of the Spirit in our church by avoiding dumb discussions. Don't, don't even enter into it. But some people are, are so bent, and this is, again, the people he's warning about, the people that have been in every church, they're so bent on this that they can't stop. They have to make a point out of a non-point. They have to make controversy where there is no conver- controversy. And then we have some really tough verses to read that I think we need to take very seriously. These are warnings for all of us. And they said we to conduct things as a church Verse ten and eleven: to warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and after that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful; they are self-condemned. Wow, that's hard to read. That's really hard to read, but I think we can all like we can all um, we can all understand this in a personal sense. You know, if, if you have that family gathering. Uh, the, the family reunions, there's, there's often like that one person was like, everybody was having a good time and laughing and, until the one person showed up. And the next time, it's like, yeah, once they show up, the gloves are off, the bets are off, we don't know what's going to happen and who's going to have a problem with who, and there always just seems to be fights and quarrels and they complicate things. Some people are just divisive, and, and they love confrontation, they love conflict. And this is where it's important to know like, what a divisive person is and what they aren't. Yeah. And A divisive person isn't someone who just disagrees with you. A, di- a divisive person isn't someone who just stands in the way of what you want or has different opinions than you. That's the great thing about being in the body of Christ, is we can have a ton of different opinions and preferences, but still come together in the unity that only God can give. But a divisive person is, is one who pits people against one another. And this is a habitual It's something they just always seem to do. And even when they're confronted, there is zero repentance, there is zero forgiveness, and they continue to do it. I think there is a pretty clear definition given back in, in Proverbs 6. Again, this isn't a new idea here today, this isn't a new idea in Titus, and this is a problem all the way back in the time of King Solomon when he writes in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, that there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, is what he writes. And that just means like the this, this, this sense of pride where you kind of look down your nose at people and just think you're better than everyone, right? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And that doesn't mean like literally killing people, but you just don't really care about the people around you. If they stand in the way of what you want, you know, that they're pretty much dead to you. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and this is the last one. A person who stirs up conflict in the community. God hates that. That's detestable to God. A person who is willingly and always wanting to stir up conflict in a community. And that's why we have this warning here, In Titus three ten, that you got to warn them, right? This is where we. This is really for church leadership, but it's it's for anyone. Of like, what are you doing? We had something good here. What are you doing? And warn them again. And the third time, it's kind of a three strikes and you're out. This is what's referred to as church discipline, and it's something that's not fun, right? Hebrews twelve, eleven says, no no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those trained by it. This is an important part because sometimes people unknowingly move into the spot of being divisive. And that's where we, especially as leaders, but as all Christians, are here to warn them and rebuke them. And just. And, and this is, again, warning is something that's to be done out of love. This isn't something you take pride in or have joy in. But it also needs to be clear it's not this vague thing where it's like this action was harmful. Like, I don't think you know what you're doing. This is a really harmful thing to the community. And if at any point in this process the person says, You're right. I'm sorry. I need to stop this. If there's a sense of repentance, then all the warnings are gone, and now we move towards restoration. And that's something we all have joy in as people. But if people are unwilling to change, this is the hard part. That's not unique to this. This church discipline is is mentioned actually eight or nine times directly in the Bible, once by Jesus himself and another dozen times indirectly. It's something that's real, that if someone refuses to change, then you have to be willing to separate from them. And I've never been a part of dismissing someone from community or fellowship. I've never never been in a church where that has happened at that time. But I, I know pastors who have. And it is so hard. Pastors and elders that have to walk through that. It, it just It is such a burden. There's zero joy in it. And it affects every part of your life and you just ache for them to just repent and turn and, and you want to welcome them back and, and keep them in the community but there's a time in which you have to let them go. And it is hard for my to understand. It affects every part of your life. Your, your, your spiritual health, your physical health, your, your family health, your emotional health. Every part of you is affected by that. But I think the last part we see there in verse 11 is, is you know what? At the end of the day, there's not much you could do. But they, They're warped. Their mind, they're just deceived by this stuff. And they're just bent towards sin. And when it says they're self condemned, it means they, they did this to themselves. And maybe you're part of a family where you finally had that person that was really difficult where you're like, I just, we can't do this anymore. We can't do it. It rips every part out of you. And that's what's being said here. But, but the reality is, like you understand that to live productive lives, you, you can't be deep in the stuff that's taking you away from Christ's mission. Life is way too short. Our lives are way too short. And eternity is way too long. And, and the gospel and, and the mission that he's given us pays dividends for all of eternity. And if you're distracted from that, you need to, at some point, just have a clear separation and move on. Even Paul and Barnabas did that. You know, there's, there's some like, should Mark be involved? Should not be, Mark not be involved? And Barnabas was so important to Paul. He was, he was like Paul's main encourager, right? But there's a point where they disagreed and the, the division is too strong before they find that we need to just part ways, right? It's a different method, but we have the same mission and we can't compromise that from one another. Life is too short. Eternity is way too long for us to be derailed from Christ's mission. It's tough stuff to read, but it's so important to take heart and, and, and to know that this is written for a reason. And he goes on, and to finally kind of the, the final remarks, the parting remarks, remarks for all the believers, and there's just a couple quick logistical things, and, and the theme of this is to live the productive life, right? Verse 14 and 15, excuse me, verse 12 and 13. He says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to visit me in Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Okay, not, a lot of this means much to us now. Uh, at some point, Artemis or Tychicus, we know nothing about one and a bit about the other, was going to come to relieve Titus of his duties to meet Paul. Like we don't, we, Nicopolis means nothing to us. But there's a principle here. That as a Christian, you need to be willing to share the load and and, and share your leadership and and pass the baton and partner with people. Titus doesn't know who's going to come take over for him, but you know what? He's poured his blood and his sweat and his tears into the work of this this island of Crete and these churches. He's devoted his whole life to this, and now someone's going to take it from him and do it while he's away. And we have a hard time with that. And being productive means sharing right, and partnering. Sometimes you're like, no, this is my thing. Nobody else can do it. This is my thing. But we need to be able to share with people and pass things on and partner. If we want to be productive, we need to be working together. right? And then he talks about, verse 13, Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that, we have, see that they have everything they need. Now again, we don't know Zenus. we don't know Apollos, we know a bit about both of them. But the, the principle for here is, is to, to just make sure needs are met in the lives of others. You look, look beyond yourself and, 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 and help others in their needs. And that's where we get to the real meat here, in the final remarks, we want to focus on this as we close the message today. And this is speaking to all of us. Our people is talking about believers in all churches of all times. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Now, to devote yourself to doing what is good, this is a repeated theme. And it's this idea that you don't just try it out. It's not just a, a one-day goal. Devote is like it's this lifelong thing, no matter where you are, always have your mind and your heart set on doing what is good. Do what you can do in every situation to meet the needs, the urgent needs of others. And and I I love that. It's not should we meet these needs, but as a church community, it's who's going to meet these needs? How are we going to take care of the urgent needs of people? And finally, to avoid unproductive lives. In other words, don't waste your life. Don't, don't waste your life on, on meaningless, unproductive stuff. The reality is that, that we all have a limited amount of time alive, and, and there's no guarantee that tomorrow will come. We have today. We know that we have today. And the heart of wisdom is to number your days. You know that God has only given us a certain amount of time alive. Don't, don't waste it on all the unproductive stuff. You could be known for a lot of things in your life. A lot of things. You could be the best in the world at a lot of things. And and I looked up um, ways people could be known forever. And one of those ways is being the best in the world, having a world record at something. There's some dumb things you can have a world record in. Did you know that the longest time going backwards on a unicycle playing a violin (laughs) is 5 hours and 42 minutes? I don't care to attempt breaking that record, but someone is known for that. Did you know that the most eggs crushed on your head in a minute is 80? I feel like I could probably beat that, right? It's just more than one per second. I could train for that and and, and devote my time to that, but is that productive or is that busy? Did you know the heaviest train pulled with a beard was 6,000 pounds for about 30 feet? Now, I don't have a beard, but any beard, bearded people here, do you, have any, uh, do you have any desire to beat that record? You see, there's a difference between being busy and being productive. What are you doing each day that you have? What are you doing now with what you have? How are you going to be remembered after you die? What do you want people to say at your funeral? Start living like that now. And that that's this final remark that, that Titus has is this just stop wasting your life and do what matters for eternity. Because after today you might not have another chance. That's the heart of wisdom before God. And as we conclude, you know, the last verse that's written there, there's just kind of the standard remarks from Paul as he closes. Everyone With me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And the last words, again, these aren't unique to Titus. Grace be with you all. You think about the hard things in Titus that we're called to. Many, many commands. What a more fitting way to end the book. than grace be with you all. Just pray for God's grace in your life. And it's the reality that we're all going to have issues. We're all going to do the wrong things and make mistakes. The last thing you want in your life is bitterness or resentment. Pray for God's grace. Grace of God is the one that gives you self-control and forgiving hearts and wisdom and strength and endurance. It's it's God's grace that can equip us to serve and and to lead well and to live productive lives. It's it's only God's grace that's going to sustain you. And I pray that we all learn through life it's, it's only God's grace that we need. God's grace is all we need in this, so, so trust in that. And so I just want to encourage anyone here today, if you're, if you're feeling burdened, if you're feeling like you're struggling, that you've been unproductive, then fall before God and stand in his grace. He's going to work in you the things that need to be done. Just come to him and only to him. Let's close in prayer today. Lord, I thank you for the way that you work in us. And, and we know, God, that if any of us are doing this poorly or if we're doing this well, in the end, the only one that can make us successful is you. It's, it's your grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's your grace that gives us the strength to move forward through things. And, and God, I just pray at the end of the day that we are truly self-reflective and, and ask ourselves the questions, am I, am I being productive or am I being busy? And so, God, I just pray that we would know what truly is productive, that we know what makes the, the, the biggest difference for eternity in our lives and the lives of those around us. And then I pray, God, that, that we'd be busy with that, that we would wear ourselves out with that, that we would put so much time and energy into that, that until our final breath, God, we just keep going, and then we're at the point of ready, being ready to collapse because we used all of our energy on what is good and what is productive But God, this is all possible because of you, because of the new life we have in you and and your work of the Holy Spirit in us. So God, I I pray that we wouldn't be feeling shamed or burdened in this moment, but we'd be feeling released to give this to you. God, and we live lives open to you in full submission to what you have for us. So God, I just pray for everyone today that no one feels like they have to do everything, but everyone knows that they can do something. God, may we be obedient in that to do those things. So we thank you. This is your work in us, not our work for you that you ultimately are glorified in this. And so God, I just pray that we'd be productive in what you have for us, moment by moment. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.